Hello and welcome to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on Monday 5th of August 2019 and for the first time since the Panmunjom Mini Summit we're having an NK News Mini Summit roundtable and so I'm happy to be joined by Career Risk Group founder and CEO Chad O'Carroll. Good morning everybody. And Editor-in-Chief Oliver Hotham. Morning. And Senior Analyst Rachel Mignon Lee. Good morning. In the past couple of weeks, we have seen some military visits by Kim Jong-un, some projectile vomiting into the East Sea, and the 66th anniversary of the signing of the armistice agreement between North Korea and China on the one hand, and the UN forces represented by the United States on the other hand, that which put the uh, Korean War on hold. So let's talk about projectiles first. How many projectile launches have we seen from North Korea in the last couple of weeks? There's been three uh, three projectile events in the last couple of weeks, uh, which bring it to five sets of launch events this year. And as far as we can see, three have involved short-range ballistic tactical missiles, uh, and two have involved uh, sort of hybrid long-range artillery rocket, uh, multiple ro- launch rocket system but with some ballistic properties. So there's a bit of uh, ambiguity about just exactly what type of uh, projectile you would class some of these more recent ones as. Yeah, I think we need to uh, to break that down a little bit for any of our readers who are not Ankit Panda, uh, which is most of them. If you have something like a, um, uh, a giant cannon or a big gun and you, you lob something out of there which has no propellant power on its own, what's that called? That could be artillery, that could be, as you suggested, tank fire, I don't know the exact term for that, uh, but the difference is if, it's, if it has a guided capability right. and uh, it has its own propulsion system, then I believe that's considered a ballistic uh, missile. Okay, so it has its own propulsion system and some onboard guidance things so it can be guided from back home is it well yeah it can be quite primitive though okay. uh, in terms of the guidance some of the really older uh, scud ballistic missiles that north korea developed have mm. quite poor targeting capabilities um but there's also cruise missiles as well uh, like the tomahawk which uh is they go at much slower speeds but uh, have really good maneuverability and can deliver very small much smaller payloads Okay, so these three most recent launches by North Korea, are there any you know, new types of, uh, uh, of missiles that we're seeing there? So we understand that the missile that they tested, I guess the first test of July was of a missile um, that we described as the Songun Iskander. You could also call it the Kim Skander, just because it's uh, seen as very similar to the Russian Iskander, um, but it's kind of an Iskander with North Korean um, characteristics. Um, and then, as Chad said, uh, we have these. We had these two launches last week um, of essentially a multiple rocket launcher system um, that we believe is new. Um, that the North Koreans um, was essentially known. The North Koreans had something similar under development for a while, and they've decided to bring it out now um, for reasons that potentially we'll probably get into later. But it seems like this is the type of thing that they can test and get away with. So, so, so it's, it's one one launch device, uh, mm. one, there's probably a term for that, one launch base that can shoot off multiple of these uh, ballistic uh, self-guided missiles at the same time. Yes. Or, or one after the other, I presume, in, in yeah. quick succession. In quick succession. Okay, wow. Now, is that does that pose a threat? I think I, I heard some or read somewhere that it's uh, 
not easily counterable by the THAAD system because it flies too low or, or something like that? The THAAD system would be ill equipped to defend against either the KN-23 or these uh, artillery slash MRLS, MLRS systems which have been used recently. And is that because they're too low? Uh, yeah, so the, the KN-23 has uh, recently been flown on an apogee of about 50 kilometers. And what I understand is that when it's flown that much lower than um, the other ballistic missiles in North Korea's inventory, um, or its arsenal rather, uh, it means there's a shorter uh, lead time for the THAAD battery to detect the incoming fire and take uh-huh. and launch countermeasures against it. So yeah, it's it's not really designed for that kind of thing. And then for something like the MLRS, presumably you would need a defense system more like Israel's Iron Dome, which is designed for. But I, 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 that from the, the the data we've seen from the MLRS stuff last week, those things were flying at max six point two or something. Mm. Was it? Really, six point eight. Okay, now what the most recent launch was that on the thirty first? Have I remembered that correctly, or am I already a day off? August second. August second. Okay, and the, where were they launched from? Yonghun, South Hamgyong Province. Okay, and there was a previous one on the thirty first. Where were they launched from? Uh, Wonsan, Kalma area. That's Kangwon province, so that's more south than Yonghung. But the the photos seems to suggest that these two launches, the two most recent ones, are being done from a new site. And state media imagery has kind of suggested that Kim Jong Un is kind of observing them from like a ship or a vessel or some kind of little. Oh. Um, he's got some sort of little room with it like. Could be. He could well be in the the uh, track. Um, mounted chassis system that's launching it from. Mm. Right, but so you so know that really close to. Yeah. Oh right. That was my guess. I don't know what those things look like inside, but he's smoking inside them. He's got an ashtray out. Do you want to be smoking near a rocket? You <laughs> <laughs> know why it is. It just reminds me of the old cartoons, the old Looney Tunes, or something. You know. Wiley Coyote. Uh, now, these launches, are they breaches of agreements entered into by North Korea? Well, they, they're breaches of United Nations Security Council resolutions, um, but obviously North Korea doesn't recognize those. Um, the MLRS is a bit more on the fence, though. I mean, the South Koreans described it as a ballistic missile at one point, but it's they seem a bit too small to be considered ballistic missiles I mean when you think of ballistic missiles you think of usually something that's going to deliver a large payload of conventional weapons chemical weapons bio or nuclear and those things are very small mm. in comparison uh, and but uh, yeah. what, what, so what sort of payload can we imagine would fit on these things now well I, re- I really don't know I mean I've seen the launchers look like they could have anywhere between four or eight of these missiles per launcher, and you compare that to like a Hwasong uh, Scud-style ballistic missile, where you just have one. Yeah. Um, so you, you can imagine that's maybe six times less space, four times less space. You could probably still fit a dirty bomb on the end, though. I would imagine, couldn't you? This is we really need a non-proliferation expert in this, in this <laughs> conversation now. Uh, so what's been the response from uh, from South Korea so far? 
Well, South Korea um, has actually responded quite strongly. Um, there was a series of missile tests in um, May as well. And um, South Korea was trying to really um, play down the tests. But this time it seems like South Korea has decided that we need to have a strong response. So they've been uh, essentially said they were deeply concerned about it. They urged North Korea uh, not to jeopardize peace. Um, and they also suggested that the tests violated the spirit of the inter-Korean military agreement signed last year. South Korea's response has really even been stronger than the U.S.'s response. The U.S. has had a very dialed back um, response. They don't really want to jeopardize, I'm sure we'll get into this later, these planned working level talks. So they're really, um, I guess, also trying not to call North Korea's bluff and freak out about them too much and just say, oh, we're not really bothered. Um, it does seem since uh, since the failure of the Hanoi talks that President Trump has been deliberately sort of poo-pooing uh, any any panic, poo-pooing any panic. Can that be a, a thing? Well, anyway, he's been really downplaying. He has uh, been. And I, over the weekend, there were Japanese media reports uh, saying that President Trump had asked Abe during the APEC summit um, to sort of ignore or mm. give understand, try to understand Kim Jong-un's uh, missile launches? Well, now that's... <laughs> we, we now have the, uh, the spectacle of, of uh, a U.S. president... Uh, uh, Trying to make excuses and for... And being an advocate for... <laughs> not an advocate, but a defender. I don't I mean, know. One of, the things that, for? one of the things that Trump has really sort of banged on about is um, when people say, well, nothing's... There's been no concrete outcomes of this diplomatic process right. has been, well, North Korea's not testing missiles, they're not testing nuclear weapons. It's really one of the few, I guess, victories he can claim. So mm. I guess Trump really believes that as long as they can explain away these things, he's still he's still friends with Chairman Kim. Are they still sending letters or has that sort of stopped since the mini summit a month ago? Well, some something's going on because uh, on August, sorry, July 31st, Reuters reported that, quoting a senior uh, NSC official, that a senior North Korean... That's the U.S. National Security Council. Yes. Uh, quote, quoting one who spoke on background to press as saying that the North Koreans had told them that working level talks would start very soon. Hmm. Um, so there may be some contact that's continuing. And, uh, I mean, just in trying to understand these missile launches and this uh, sort of aggression recently one of the explanations is it's really just north korea based on reciprocity they are upset they i mean they've said they're upset with the fact that south korea is taking delivery of these f-35a advanced stealth jets and they're upset about the fact that the u.s is going on with uh exercises and so these new weapons tests may simply just be um on on North Korea's pathway to talks just to, to show the US and South Korea that if you're going to do this, well, expect this bump along the way from our side. Um, hmm. But uh, Rachel, the, the uh, North Korea has for years, decades, um, always made a lot of noise when some kind of uh, uh, joint exercise was done on the Korean peninsula. Like, it, it hasn't always launched a missile. So is this just a new, uh, a new pattern of behavior? Well, so I think what's notable about North Korea's recent rhetoric on the U.S. ROK joint military exercises is that the criticism has focused specifically on South Korea. 
at least on the surface of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's that's the most notable feature. And I think that's you know Pyongyang's way of leaving the door open for talks, because you can't criticize the U.S. right in these reports, and then like a couple of weeks later, you know, tell the people, oh yeah, so we're gonna go ahead with these talks uh-huh. with the U.S. So it's it's I think it's it definitely is their way of leaving the door open um, by hitting out at. South Korea, or throwing them under the bus, mm-hmm. uh, and you know by by doing that, you know, sort of putting the pressure on the U.S., but you know, obviously without criticizing the U.S. So could we say this is North Korea <laughs> playing both good cop and bad cop at the same time to different uh, negotiating partners? You mean good cop to the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, North Korea mm-hmm. being good cop to the U.S. and bad cop to South Korea? I mean, I think North Korea. is also saying at the moment that South Korea isn't a negotiating partner, right? right. South Korea is essentially irrelevant to this process. Mm-hmm. And they understand that the inter-Korean process that we saw last year, while it produced a lot of things that um, Moon Jae-in liked, a lot of nice photo ops, family <laughs> reunions, it didn't actually produce anything that Pyongyang really needed or wanted. So they've decided, well, um, <laughs> the best approach is to just ignore South Korea Um, and leave South Korea just out in the cold while we pursue this uh, stuff with the U.S. Again, we know that North Korea's bureaucracy is not fantastic at doing multiple things at the same time. So if their focus is on trying to get a deal with the U.S., they can't really be also trying to Mm. talk to the South Koreans as well. Um, So there's that as well. But couldn't you argue that uh, last year's uh, Singapore summit wouldn't have been possible if you hadn't had the April summit with with President Moon? You know, ignoring South Korea is not the best way to uh, to get what it wants from the U.S. Well, the invitation to Trump to have the summit in the first place came from South Korean officials, right? Right. Um, but I think the North Koreans now understand that they've got Trump's ear and don't really need uh, that that approach anymore. They don't need South Korea anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that's the short end of it. <laughs> now, uh, Andre Lankov, uh, he wrote an op-ed for, uh, for us at NK News in which he basically said, nothing to panic about. North Korea is not going to withdraw from diplomacy. Seems to back up what you're saying, Rachel. Uh, that they're leaving the door open for negotiations. <laughs> What's his basis for saying this, and, and do we agree? Andre's argument is essentially, I think, a fairly solid one, which is that the fact that North Korea has, been, has not started testing what we could very easily define as ballistic missiles suggests that they are just, this is a response to the military drills, it's a response to the deployment of uh, fighter jets to the peninsula. Um, the fact that recent North Korean commentary about these uh, these drills hasn't really focused on the U.S. as well. I think backs up that argument as well as the meeting at Panmunjom that Chad referenced. Um, I think it's pretty clear that North Korea feels like it does need to respond to these things, but at the same time, badly wants a deal, knows that the clock is ticking. Trump's presidency may only have just <laughs> over a year left in it, and they know that. If there is a Democrat um, that replaces Trump, they might be much less likely to take a deal. So I think the North Koreans really understand that um, you know they they can't be messing around and going back to fire and fury at this point. But they that in the last month we've also seen uh, an uptick in North Korean contact with China and Russia mm-hmm. and high level contact. Uh, in some cases, like medium. I would say medium to high. Um, not leadership, obviously, but. Uh, we're seeing that contact coming in the wake of those summits with Putin and Xi Jinping. And I I mean, it's probably not the likely explanation, but part of me is wondering if it's possible that the North Koreans at this point are actually relatively well off in terms of economic development. There's enough uh, nefarious sanctions breaching stuff going mm-hmm. on to keep 
the supplies up and the economic growth consistent. And they may be thinking that actually that of all the stakeholders in this sort of debate that are interested in a, in a settlement, probably South Korea and the US have more pressure to get something soon than North Korea. Trump has the election coming up. He's had no foreign policy successes recently. Uh, South Korea is entering this kind of vicious dispute with Japan. And in terms of domestic achievements, Moon doesn't have much to, to say right now and his inter-Korean outreach has failed. So you you wonder if maybe there's a chance that North Korea, is mis- which it has done before, is miscalculating how much leverage it has mm. and actually genuinely thinks it has a good enough hand to, to alter some of the US behavior with regards to delivery of F-35s or these forthcoming exercises. You know, hoping that Trump may decide to do something radical as he did in the, the press uh, conference after Singapore. Again, I think that's probably not the, the, the likely explanation, which is what we've discussed before. But I do wonder if the the North Koreans are really as desperate for a deal as, as Oliver is suggesting. Hmm. So I think I- there is the, sorry, no, there is the, uh, on the opposite end of that, there is the sanctions issue as well. In that North Korea, we kind of know that sanctions are really beginning to hurt. We have this new round of sanctions coming from the US. We had some sanctions from US Treasury and Justice Department last month that were kind of, were not as strong as many people would like, but are kind of letting the North Koreans know that if if there is no movement on this, we can dial it up a notch as well. Um, and I think Kim Jong-un is aware of that. Again, there's also the fact that Kim Jong-un needs to show some kind of victory, having been so humiliated in Hanoi, I think, this has been talked about a lot, and maybe it's slightly overstated, but there does seem to be some kind of disagreement within the North Korean political elites over the over the approach. Um, so yeah, it's possible that Kim Jong Un does want also what we've described as a small deal, right? Like some kind of short term mm. thing that just gives him a little boost domestically. But I'm interested in what Min Young thinks as well. Well, so I tend to agree with Chad that maybe North Korea is not as desperate economically. And we have seen many reports saying that the number of Chinese tourists going into North Korea has skyrocketed in recent months. Mm. So I think that may have given Pyongyang some breathing space in terms of the economy. So and 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 let's remember too that last week um, during in in one of state media readouts on the missile launches, um, you know the the report quoted Kim Jong Un as saying that South Korea. U.S. joint military exercises are a national security threat. And that was extremely rare, that kind of language being used and that being directly attributed to the leader, um, you know, and anything coming from the leader is the most authoritative Mm. in North Korean media, right? Uh, So I do think that they are maybe shifting their focus from sanctions relief to issues having to do with national security. And and I think that they may want to use you know these ongoing um, military exercises sort of as you know their way of you know maybe emphasizing that they are serious about settling um, you know what they perceive to be threats to national security. And it was just if we rewind a year, it was almost a year ago when the whole debate was about a, a peace declaration, mm. and then by October it flipped into sanctions relief. Sanctions, that's and a very good point. And now we're yeah. flipping back into. Yeah. I think it's safe to say North Korea wants both. It's not. 
That's true, but if well, you're I mean, talking I think about North priorities, Korea wants everything, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, it does. And and this is not to say, of course, that North Korea is not interested in sanctions relief. It obviously is. Mm. But you know, if we're talking about priorities, do they want sanctions relief as much as we think they do? Right. So, what do you believe the priorities are right now for Kim Jong Un? I I think I think just given the way they're treating the re, they're responding um, to the joint military exercises, um, we haven't. So for, for going back to April when they had the Dongmeng 19-1 exercise, mm-hmm. right? Um, North Korea didn't launch missiles, you know, in the lead up to or during. I think the missile, they started launching missiles, you know, the two rounds of missiles in May. I think yeah. those were launched after, right after the exercises ended. Mm. Now, this time, they started launching missiles in the lead up to. Dongmeng exercises begin today. Yeah. And we see these, uh, we saw these military, well, missile, missile launches last week. Right, so in the lead up too, so they're basically they're they're really escalating it. So the priorities are mm-hmm. stop the exercises. That's number one, and then number two is. I think they're using the exercise as a pretext to emphasize that they are serious about removing obstacles to their national security mm, okay. or or safety. You know, yeah. and that's one thing. One of the things that they've always asked for is you know security guarantee from the U.S. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They always wanted that. Mm. Uh, does it seem well? What's North Korea's position right now on, on working level talks with the U.S.? Has that changed? Well, like I said, we we had that Reuters report July thirty one, which I found. I mean, it, the the context it came out within is kind of confusing. Signals, you've got <laughs> missile projectile launches going on, and then mm. someone, a senior official, telling an NSC official, "We're going to have talks really soon." So you wonder, like, when? I mean, it, I'm assuming it wouldn't be toward, until towards the end of August at the very earliest, maybe even later at this point. Yeah, I think the last we've heard from North Korean official sources about the working level talks in media was that commentary, which said from the foreign ministry that said, "Oh, if these." drills go on, we'll reconsider our participation in the working level talks. So I think that's it's safe to say that we won't see them go ahead until at least the drills are over. So that would be mm. August 22nd, 23rd. Yeah, late August. Yeah. Yeah, and in mid-July, uh, North Korea state media warned <coughs> that its moral obligation to keep the pledges with the US is gradually disappearing. So that sounds kind of ominous. Yeah, and just to go back to the idea that maybe they're not that desperate, we had a... Uh, long-time North Korea watcher, economist, come and do a talk recently. Um, it was off the record, so I can't say his name, but he made a really good point that, nor, you know, we like to think that they're, they're desperate for a deal and that they need some kind of settlement with the West for future stability and so on. But he pointed out that if, if there were no more increases in sanctions, then trade with uh, a more open-minded Russia and China would be easily more than enough to mm. guarantee uh, sort of significant economic growth for the next decade or two to come. Well, that's really, if he's right, that's an important point we should definitely bear in mind, that, uh, that Russia and China are enough for North Korea's growth into the next decade. Well, you know, for the next decade, I should say. But the, the problem with that is that everything that North Korea would trade with those countries is prohibited. So North Korea can't really trade coal, it can't trade seafood, can't trade textiles. So unless those countries are willing to subsidize North Korea, um, which they did in the past, mm. um, I don't really see that as a sustainable economic strategy. Um, but then well, can, can we, are we going to have the same sanctions in place in 10 years? I mean, there, there, there will be, there's already sanctions fatigue. And you, if, if you take away the the cause of those sanctions, i.e. 
and this is uh, an open question as to whether North Koreans will not test the kind of ballistic missiles that cause them. Um, but if you take away the sort of main stimuli for those sanctions, then after a while, it's it it, it is a, it is effectively close to a trade embargo, and international law doesn't really support that being sustained for a very long time. So there could be a case where the Chinese or Russians just start openly flouting it because mm. especially in context of the trade war that we're seeing with Beijing and Washington at the moment, I mean, if, if that gets worse, which it looks like it will, then why, why should they cooperate on North Korea sanctions? Especially if, you, if they found some way to cut themselves out of the US financial system, right? Because the one leverage the US would be able to use in that situation would be oh, well, these huge fines on Chinese banks and Russian organizations. Um, if the Chinese or Russians found a way to get around that, it wouldn't even be an issue. One thing I would like to draw our um, readers' attention to is, um, you know, the domestic situation in North Korea. So uh, we have seen over the past few months a hardening of position um, towards diplomacy. So one that seems to um, give priority to uh, principles um, and domestic resilience uh, over diplomacy and flexibility. Uh, we have seen a series of unusual high-level uh, North Korean media articles uh, basically emphasizing self-reliance and uh, lashing out at foreign elements, uh, foreign funds, foreign technology, why it's uh, dangerous to rely on foreign forces, why it's extremely important to rely on ourselves. Um, and so there's been that it's a series of unusual articles um, between May and July. Are these and the principles that you're referring to? Yeah. Principles so of basically, and right, and, and rejecting anything foreign, right? Uh, and well, not anything foreign, but you know, over reliance or over dependence. Um, so, so there's that, and then we've also seen foreign ministry pronouncements becoming higher level. So um, after the Singapore summit, usually we've seen very low-level foreign ministry pronouncements, like foreign ministry spokesmen's uh, answer to KCNA or foreign ministry institute pronouncements. Um, now they're becoming foreign ministry spokespersons' press statements, which mm. are higher uh, uh -huh. level and therefore more authoritative. Um, so I think I think that the line definitely has hardened um, against diplomacy. Um, if you read between the lines of, of what North Korean media has been saying over the past couple of months. So I say this because we, you know, when we talk about North Korea DPRK, we like to talk about prospects, right, for diplomacy, prospects for, and, you know, um, the resumption of working level talks. And um, I don't see the, the positions of the two sides changing, right, as far as denuclearization is concerned, the, de the denuclearization process is concerned. Mm. So... I, I personally am not that optimistic yeah. about the prospects uh, for for these talks. Even if working level talks did resume, you know, at the end of August or you know after that, I I, I don't know where the two sides would go. And go just yeah, just a month ago, I remember writing an analysis for NK Pro after the Trump Kim meeting, and I was quite optimistic and. I'll have to say now, I got it wrong. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously, it, it, you know, it felt like there was a real chance there. And I, I was surprised at how quickly it turned. And we've now got to this situation where it just looks quite foggy and uh, not, not very good. 
Yeah, within a fortnight of the mini summit, mm. uh, that's uh, two weeks for mm. our American friends, yeah. uh, things went downhill, didn't they? Have they gone downhill though? I mean, is this not just par for the course? That we have this ebb and flow. We saw this last year. We saw this after Hanoi. We saw this you did, you were after right. Singapore. I mean, it's a process. People, the assumption that I think Trump believes this, that he can just sit down with Kim Jong-un, snap his fingers and a deal will just appear is, is obviously um, not true. And the assumption is when we see these high level summits that progress is taking place. But actually these things take time and it's always the nitty gritty. And these are two countries that have been in a stalemate for mm. half a day, half a century. Um, I think, you know, it's important to temper expectations, but not just necessarily fall into pessimism as soon as the first hurdle appears, because, of course, there'll always be hurdles because these countries are at war but with the, each other. The, the thing, the, the reason I do a bit is, I mean, when I entered this subject 10 years ago, I remember thinking, why does the US just not cancel uh, its, you know, these provocations and things like that? And you know, remove forces from the peninsula and then there can be a deal. Just remove all of the excuses that North Koreans have, play, give them right. a buff. But um, I remember people like Lankov would say, uh, the talks I used to go to, that he would say things like, well, as soon as they do that, then the next excuse will be, well, you need to remove troops from Japan now. Mm. And actually this, it kind of gives credence to that logic. Like we've seen... The major drills cancelled this year, and yet they're fretting about um, really small ones, which are mainly like computerized drills. And as General Abrams said in in January, the North Koreans are continuing with their drills just as normal. They haven't had the big winter drill. Yeah, they haven't altered anything, which requires a million men Mm, uh, and women. Um, And, you know, yes, they get taking delivery of uh, two F-35s, but that's been on the cards for a long time. And clearly the North Koreans have been developing things uh, ready for uh, demonstration when those F-35s go in. So I, I, it does feel like there's al- with this, this this sort of chronic dispute, there's always going to be an excuse not to do things. Oh, but the North Koreans also seem to be under the impression that Trump has committed to no more drills, right? That there does mm-hmm. seem... Trump. The North Koreans seem to be under the impression that Trump has promised no more of these military exercises, which the North Koreans essentially see as a rehearsal for an invasion. Um, I think there is often a comparison where people say, well, North Korea went through its winter training cycle. But the size of that in comparison to, you know, North Korea has a completely outdated army. It's completely, <laughs> I think if there were a war, North Korea's army wouldn't last particularly long. And they see right on their border, they would see the world's most powerful country in cooperation with its, its puppet. Um, just uh, essentially preparing for a decapitation. The the drill that's going ahead this week does still prepare for decapitation strikes and things like that. It's just not a big, mm. you know, provocative uh, field exercise. So I think the North Koreans, maybe they're getting mixed messages from the Americans as well. They're hearing, well, yeah, that's true. You know, American military officials are saying, well, we still need to do this. It's essential for um, preparedness. But maybe Trump, when he was in the room with Kim Jong-un in Panmunjom, said, oh, yeah, yeah, we won't do that. Mm. Um, so there's there's also an issue of miscommunication and misunderstanding, right? Well, let me pick up on your point that uh, North Korea has one of the most outdated militaries in the world and turn to uh, Rachel here to talk about uh, uh, North Korean media reporting on Kim Jong-un's military appearances in the last uh, couple of weeks and months. So we definitely have seen an uptick in North Korea, well, Kim Jong-un's military activities uh, starting in April. Um, So interestingly, the timing of it um, is that 
Well, so it, so there was a party plenum in April where we saw the resurgence of key munitions industry personnel in the party, right, being elected to key posts, including um, as members of the Central Military Commission, which oversees um, the munitions um, projects um, of, the, of the country, right? And then um, one day later, or two days later, Kim Jong-un delivers his policy speech to, to the Supreme People's Assembly, where he expressed displeasure over the Hanoi summit and, um, you know, gave that uh, end of the year deadline uh, to Trump. Um, and a week later is when we started to see, you know, the weapons testing, right? Kim Jong-un guides a new tactical guided weapon. Um, and so that was April 17th. Um, and then in on May 4th, we see a missile launch and then followed by that another missile launch on May 9th. Um, so definitely um, military um, activities did pick up um, after after the party plenum, I would say, in, in April. And we've also started to see the return of some familiar faces. Um, from 2017. From 2017, from the National Academy of Defense Sciences. Um, munitions department. Munitions department. Um, I think Kim Jong-un knows as well that North Korea watchers will see those people and be reminded of of dark days. Um. And also expressions, formulations that we hadn't seen related to weapons development, um, we all also started seeing um, in April. Mm. So, uh, when you say uh, expressions, do you mean sort of more belligerent language? Well, you know, like weapons development, weapons mm-hmm. systems, you know, um, words implying an interest in a weapons development that mm-hmm. we did not see after see. 2017. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the visit to the submarine factory that Kim Jong-un famously made a week or two ago. So that was very uh, unusual in the sense that it was Kim Jong-un's first visit to a submarine factory. Now, he had made a number of um, inspections relating uh, where uh, submarines were involved, but this was his first uh, visit to a submarine factory. Um, another notable thing about that report on Kim Jong-un's submarine um, visit was that it talked about um, plans for deployment, uh, which was unusual. Deployment of that submarine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and talking about the geographical, you know, the operational scope, you mm. know, specifically what saying that it would be well, the EC or commonly, more commonly known as the Sea of Japan. Mm-hmm. Mm. And uh, the other uh, notable thing about that report uh, was that he um, directly attributed to Kim Jong-un, uh, the report uh, talked about the importance of continuing to test, develop, and deploy weapons, thereby implying that the North would continue to engage in those activities, uh, mm. at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and South Korea has now said that it assesses that that submarine is capable of carrying up to three, three. Mm. Um, ballistic missiles. Um, so in essence... Of the Kim Skander type or a of bigger the, one? Of the bigger the type, one. yeah. Okay. Mm. It, it did look like a big submarine in the, in the photographs, didn't it, Chad? Yeah, uh, good luck stealthing that, I'd say. <laughs> right, because North Korea is not known for its stealth technology. No, and all the rivets on the side, because they can't fashion large uh, metal panels that would be rivetless. So. What, what does that mean? The, uh, so it's just like if you look at um, you know videos of old fashioned cruise liners that cross the Atlantic, yeah. they're covered in rivets everywhere, and it just incre- increases the radar. Ah, um, okay. Now I didn't think how much it will be detected by radar. Um, the radar signature, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's huge, so it's just like a massive yeah. lead. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have a, a, a 
est- are there any estimates publicly made about the size of it? You know, the, the uh, what's the word, the girth or the diameter or any of that? No, I think you'd have to look up um, an article on NK Pro by Ankit Panda about <laughs> the subject where where he looked at painstaking uh, in painstaking detail how big it how big it was. All right, let's uh, talk about the um, the armistice anniversary on July twenty seventh, uh, which is. Uh, not by coincidence, Kim Jong Un's favorite locally made cigarette brand, right? Seven Twenty Seven. Oh, not anymore. Oh, he has, he a, new, he has a new brand, oh, yeah. the um, construction brand. Oh, console. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, okay. Well, I'm out of date there. Nevertheless, Seven Twenty Seven. Uh, it's the uh, the date that uh, the Korean Peninsula commemorates the 66th anniversary of the signing of the Armistice Agreement that put on pause the Korean War. Now. I'm going to bring forth a little analogy here. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember VHS video cassettes, but if you were watching a video and you put a tape on pause for a long time, it was a great way to ruin the tape because it stretched the the video. So most of the video recorders that I knew, they either would stop play automatically or resume it again after five or ten minutes. Now, thinking about the Korean War, it's been on pause for a heck of a long time, and it does seem to have elongated the war unnecessarily. I don't know if it's a, a perfect analogy, but it's maybe, one that I think of. Maybe they're using Betamax. Mate, was that a bit? That was a better quality tape, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, co- comments about the uh, the armistice, anyone? No, so there was a national report meeting, which is not unusual for North Korea to have. A national um, what meeting, sorry? National report meeting um, is what they call it. It's a standard uh, term. It's And it's because a, a high-level uh, re- official makes a report. Mm. And that's, that's why they call it a national report meeting. Um, and uh, the KPA General Political Bureau Director, uh, Kim Sugir, uh, gave a speech. And there wasn't any rhetoric about the U.S., uh, which tracks with what we've seen in North Korean media about, you know, refraining from criticism um, mm. of the U.S. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I would say it was on par with what we've seen in past years. Who was the audience for that uh, report or that speech? Oh, it's, uh, you know, uh, officials from the party, state, um, the military, uh, probably more people from the military this you know for this event because it is related to a military um, you know event the war uh, and people from Pyongyang uh, war veterans now those war veterans are getting closer and closer to uh, 90 years old with every passing year uh, next year in June it will be exactly 70 years since the war began in uh, 1950 and I expect that will be a big uh, we'll see some commemorative events on both sides of the demilitarized zone yeah, and of course, all the family reunions are, are on pause. Mm. And I had a bizarre thought over the weekend while I was going for a jog. Do you remember in Hanoi at the summit, David McNamara from the Washington Post got to ask a question to Kim Jong-un. And I wonder what Kim would have said if the question had been, why can't you support family reunions in all circumstances, regardless of politics? Mm. Like for him to be put on the spot, I'd be very curious how, how he would answer that. That is a good question. We should uh, send that one out, tweet that one out to all other journalists so that the next time Kim Jong-un is out in a public space, that that could be the one shouted at him rather than other questions. Yeah. Rather than how are you feeling. Right. That, that, oh, my, that is such a... Uh. Who is it that asked that? Uh, that was Royce's, I think. Oh, God. Uh. It's such a non-question, really, isn't it? But it's unfortunately one that we see in almost every news story. How are you feeling now that you've been rescued from, you know, uh, the cave that you fell into or something well, like that's that? Well, that's what Mr. Sigley was asked when he was released, of course. Oh, yeah. And he said, uh, 
which is a had a good meal on the plane. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so now let's move on to. Uh, South Korea and Japan, they're having a, a bit of a trade war and war of words these days because of a South Korean court ruling uh, regarding compensation for Korean forced laborers during World War II. How is this affecting the uh, sort of North Korean policy uh, of either nation, or is it? Well, um, we had some off-the-record comments by a U.S. State Department official on Friday um, who said they obviously the Americans had some tense trilateral meetings um, with the foreign ministers of both countries. There were some great photos of the body language between the two ministers. Um, you know, the Americans insist that it's not affecting um, those two countries' cooperation on North Korea all that much. Um, I would maybe ask, well, what, what cooperation is going on anyway, mm -hmm. right? I mean, South Korea is not involved in the process. Japan is certainly not involved in the process. I'm not really sure um, beyond the intelligence sharing what the two countries are working on regarding North Korea. Maybe but, that is what they meant. <laughs> yeah. Well, and how, how is the, uh, uh, the exchange of, uh, of military information and intelligence uh, under threat? Well, South Korea has said it'll consider pulling out of that agreement. I think the, the thing that might give them pause for thought on that would be that right now the US is really trying to stay out of this dispute. Um, and I think if South Korea were to pull out of the um, intelligence sharing agreement, you know, the U.S. spent a lot of time organizing that, and there was a lot of um, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. And I think if South Korea did withdraw from that, it would possibly encourage the Americans to take Japan's side. Um, that's just speculation. I really don't know. Rachel, how could uh, Pyongyang possibly exploit this to its own advantage? I don't know. I mean, I guess the popular theory is driving a wedge <laughs> between the South Koreans and the Americans. Um, you know, and of course, the trilateral security alliance among the U.S., ROK, and Japan, that's always been a thorn, um, you know, in Pyongyang's eye. So um, maybe in that respect, um, you know, it's a good thing for, for Pyongyang. And, you know, they could look for opportunities where they could maybe exploit um, the, you know, the security alliance. Has, has <laughs> I think typically, though, beefs between South Korea and Japan have often not really had an enormous impact on North Korea policy. I'm trying to think of past examples. As, I mean, North Korea, obviously, its propaganda is full of, you know... Uh, these days, are, it's full of Japan. Yeah, South of Japan, Koreans protesting of, against you know, the Japanese. Mm -hmm. Okay, so North Korean state media is reporting on this, uh, this trade war or this... Profusely, uh, yeah. a lot, every day. Uh -huh. It's about yeah. the only thing they might be able to cooperate on <laughs> anytime soon. You mean the two Koreas? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Seriously, but then again, you know, the Japan's one of Japan's argument for um, restricting the exports of certain um, technologies to Seoul was this idea that South Korea can't control its exports and that these things might go to North Korea, um, which is obviously um, not entirely truthful. I think obviously most people know the root of this dispute is obviously the court decision about forced laborers, but I guess that's the that's the key North Korea angle. Mm. Um, which, as we, as we've discussed in the office, it's it's a little bit rich of Japan to be talking about South Korea's sanctions issues when Japan obviously has a has the Chongyang and has these its own issues with uh, right. North Korea. Sanctions well, that's right. I mean, both well. the, uh, Japan and South Korea have uh, uh, put forward some evidence to show that you know uh, things have come into North Korea from both of those countries uh, in in defeat yeah. of sanctions. 
All right, uh, time to wrap up. What are we, you know, we're still near the beginning of the month in August. What are we looking at for the rest of the month? Uh, what stories will you be following? You know, I think we'll be keeping an eye on how North Korea's language evolves over the course of the month. Um, you know, the theory is once these drills wrap up, North Korea will decide to finally start these working level talks. So I think we'll probably be looking out for signs of shifting attitudes. Um, I think it's unlikely that North Korea will test any missiles while the drills are going on. They don't typically do that. Um, so we'll be keeping an eye on that as well, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Although I think um, the South Korean intelligence has warned of more missile launches um, yeah. in the days ahead. Never say never. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, uh, Chad, what's got your interest for the rest of the month? Well, actually, um, this might be good news for a lot of people, but we're in the process of redeveloping our website and it's uh, kind of in the final stages now. So I'm probably not going to be writing or speculating or analyzing too much, but rather focusing on working with our developers Mm -hmm. and getting that wrapped up. Uh, It's going to be full of new features and much more friendly for use on mobile phones. Mm -hmm. It's going to look very good. Great. So you'll be doing a lot of beta testing in uh, yeah, in yeah. Right. It's going to be great, folks. Excellent. It's going to be great. <laughs> uh, Rachel, any final thoughts from you? Oh, well, I think in August, um, just to see how North Korea, you know, continues to react uh, to the military exercises because they're supposed to last for two weeks uh, or around two weeks, uh, and whether there is any news on the resumption of working level talks. Right. We do have Liberation Day coming up in 10 days uh, on August 15th. Are so we expecting anything big for that? It's not a it's not a five or a ten numbered anniversary, is it? It's uh, uh, 74 years. Well, that, that was one thing I thought over the weekend was a real missed trick for the two careers because if they had sorted out the tourism, hmm. they could have done some kind of two careers special tours. And I say that because I was reading in the Career Times over the weekend about these uh, entrepreneurial tour companies uh, in Kangnung on the east coast who are offering like 500% discounts to those who can prove they've cancelled their trips to Japan oh, wow. to stay in Korea. It says it's for people who love Korea and I thought if they had fixed uh, <laughs> that Kumgang tourism right. they could have done some deals, stop people going to Japan for the 8.15 weekend Patriot, Patriot discounts to uh, yeah. to do a, uh, a joint career tour. That would be interesting if, if they could only get that going. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to the end uh, of another roundtable. Ladies and gentlemen, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and also some, consider buying a subscription to nknews.org, which is about to uh, undergo a complete website revamp, as we just heard from Chad. Uh, you'll always find the best and most up-to-date specialist journalism on all matters related to North Korea. And you can save $50 on your first year's subscription by using the code PODCAST at the checkout. Our thanks, as always, to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Arius Dare, our post-recording producer genius, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily noises, etc. Costs involved in the production in this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Career Fund, for which we are extremely grateful. Thanks and listen again next time.